Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Battleground Podcast Big Interview. Our guest today is Dr. Anatole Levin. Anatole is a former journalist who worked for The Times, The Financial Times and the BBC. He's currently director of the Eurasian Programme at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Uh, He's just recently been on a wide-ranging tour of Ukraine. This is what he told us about what he saw and what he heard. Anatole, welcome to the podcast. Uh, have you recently been on a tour of Ukraine? Can you tell us what you were hearing there and how you gauge the mood? The mood is is confident, and certainly the, there is solid determination to resist the Russian invasion and to go on fighting. Uh, there are certain potential cracks and difficulties, but at the moment they are largely under the surface. They could, however, emerge in future, particularly if there is a move towards or pressure on Ukraine to agree to a ceasefire, then I think you could see serious political divisions emerging in the in the Ukrainian elites. Anatol, we'll be asking you about the potential ceasefire in a bit more detail in a moment. Uh, but before we get there, I just want to sort of drill down into some of the interesting dynamics, particularly on the Russian side at the moment. And that, of course, is the endless criticism, very vocal, uh, very overt from Prigozhin, the the Wagner boss, who's, of course, forces are conducting the seemingly endless fight for Bakhmut uh, against the Russian leadership, the military leadership in particular, but also, you know, he seems almost to be moving into criticism of Putin himself. Can you explain how he's getting away with this, really, and and what really lies behind it, in your view? Well, Prigozhin is getting away with it because, you know, he has been built up by the Kremlin as an important force in the Ukraine war. Um, and he has created the image of himself as a, you know, as a great Russian military patriot. So having built him up in that way, and of course, you know, the Russian government has used Wagner in Syria, is using it in Africa and elsewhere. It's very difficult for them to get rid of him again. So yes, I mean, he has established a very strong position for himself. As to what lies behind it, I think in part what lies behind it is completely sincere on the part of Prigozhin and and Wagner, which is that the Russian military leadership has proved itself to be monstrously incompetent in just about every way, frankly. And it's widely thought that one reason why uh, the defense minister Shoigu and the military chief Gerasimov did not warn Putin uh, of the unpreparedness of the Russian military and the risks of the invasion of Ukraine uh, is that, of course, they had been in charge of the Russian military 
for well over a decade. And to admit this would have been to admit their failure, which they felt they couldn't do. From their point of view, it was better to, to, to go ahead and risk it. And Wagner, you know, has been doing a very large part of the, of the fighting in recent months. So I think that some of Prigozhin's anger, you know, does reflect the anger of his men uh, and the fact that, you know, they feel as, you know, as frontline forces often feel, uh, that they are doing the dying and, you know, the staff, the military staff are messing it up while sitting safely in offices in Moscow. So I think that's part of it. Uh, but clearly, I mean, Prigozhin is also positioning himself as a major political figure. And at the moment, he has, you know, he's still limiting his criticism of Putin personally, his, you know, the his harsh, his really harsh criticisms are focused on Shoigu and Gerasimov and the Russian military leadership. But should there be a, a political crisis that threatens Putin, for example, if Russia suffers uh, another major military defeat as a result of this Ukrainian offensive, or if by any chance, Putin were to decide to step down. In theory, he's supposed to face new elections, presidential elections early next year. If he decided to do a Yeltsin and as you know, Yeltsin handed over to Putin in 99 and choose a successor and step down, obviously in return for various guarantees, then there could be a harsh power struggle within the the Russian elites. And since Prigozhin knows that Shoigu and Gerasimov hate him, he is clearly building up a, or trying to build up a, a base of popular approval and support, which will strengthen him in any future power struggle. How high his ambitions go, we don't know. But of course, in all these cases, there is a combination of ambition and self-defense. Given that Prigozhin has so many enemies within the Russian establishment, he more or less has to strengthen himself and take the offensive uh, as a form of you know, preemptive strike, if you will. Given the political vacuum, given the absence of any serious kind of alternative political st structures in Russia at the moment, do you think his ambitions are realistic? Do you think there is a possibility that he could actually end up the top dog? I think it's a possibility, because if uh, this regime, or at least if the top elements of the regime do go, then a great deal will be up for grabs. And we really don't know how things will pan out. But certainly, part of the problem about a regime transition is that Putin has narrowed the top ranks of the regime, the people around him, so much uh, in recent years. He used to have a, a much broader and more diverse camp of leading officials, including, you know, a good many, what you might call state or patriotic liberals. But of course, in recent years, it's it narrowed down barely to half a dozen people. And they are, of course, all absolutely implicated, both in the invasion of Ukraine, but also in the in the dreadful mishandling of the invasion. So that makes it much more difficult for Putin to hand over to one of his close associates. But if he hands over to, to somebody outside the inner circle, then of course, people in the inner circle are going to feel extremely endangered by that. Uh, so it's, it is a complicated and unclear future, which of course, probably means that the, the inner circle will back Putin or even insist to Putin that he stays on.
But I mean, it's interesting if you talk to, I wouldn't call them informed Russians because they admit themselves that they don't, they just don't know by now what's going on in the, in Putin's inner circle. People who, um, you know, have been studying the Russian scene for a long time, they say that on the one hand, they think it would be impossible for Putin to survive another major defeat. But on the other hand, they say they can't imagine how Putin actually goes. So it's an unclear future. Anatole, one of the fascinating elements of the West's support for Ukraine is that it has limits. And I suppose so my broader question is, are they right to be concerned about escalation in terms of the sort of weapons they give Ukraine? We've had a lot of people coming on the podcast saying, well, they really, really need to be given everything that can do the job. Uh, And these include, of course, long range missiles that can be fired into Russia and degrade Russia's military capability on Russian soil. Recently, as you will know, the British have donated the Storm Shadow missile. A lot of military analysts are saying this is going to be a big game changer. We'll have to wait and see. But is that the sort of thing that uh, NATO was concerned about? And if that is the case, how is it and why is it that Britain's kind of stepped out of line, so to speak, and taken this act, which, of course, if you do believe the escalatory argument, could have consequences? Well, I think a key question is, you you said do the job. The the question is, what is the job? Uh, Because people in the West and within the Biden administration, by the way, are very divided about this under the surface. Because the Ukrainian government has said that the job, and they've said this is non-negotiable, is to recover all the territory that Ukraine has lost since 2014, including Crimea. Now, not merely would that absolutely doom the Putin regime. And that is something, of course, that the Ukrainians, but also the Poles and the Balts want. But the loss of Crimea would be such a blow to Russian strategic interests, Russian national pride, coupled with the certainty of his fall. I think that if that were a serious threat, then yes, uh, the Russian government would escalate radically. Not, I think, directly to the use of tactical nuclear weapons, because I mean, first, that would be a a shattering moral blow to Russia, but also, of course, be (laughs) somewhat ironic because they would be using them on territory that they claim is Russian. Uh, But I think most likely it would be something else intended not to stop the Ukrainians on the battlefield, but to terrify the the West and the Europeans in particular uh, into agreeing to a ceasefire. That could be, for example, uh, knocking out American intelligence satellites, which have done so much to help the Ukrainians. Uh, A friend of mine who used to be in the CIA said that, frankly, surprised the Russians haven't done that already, given the amount of damage that US intelligence has done. Uh, Or, of course, they could attack Western infrastructure, and they would say this was in retaliation for the American alleged, or I would say even presumed, American destruction of North Stream. And then, you know, see how how the West responds, and then go from there. Of course, next stage, bombarding NATO bases in Poland, not cities, but bases, you know, as I say, basically, as a a set of warnings, but that would initiate an escalatory spiral. And we don't know where it would end, because uh, obviously being proposals, suggestions, threats, that the US uh, should send the American Air Force into action against Russia in Ukraine. Were that to happen, Russia would certainly bombard air bases in Poland. Uh, now, that would be an attack on a NATO ally. So, yes, the, the threat of escalation is there. But I think the real problem is that we have not defined, even to ourselves, you know, let alone to the world, what it is we are aiming at in Ukraine. Now, 
by default, or on the old principle that silence denotes consent, of course, that suggests to the Russians that we are, in fact, aiming at total victory as demanded by Ukraine. Well, Russian friends said to me, one who used to be a liberal, at least, that, you know, America would, in the last resort, use nuclear weapons to defend Hawaii and Pearl Harbor uh, against an enemy. And in the very last resort, we should use nuclear weapons to defend Crimea and Sevastopol. Uh, switching to the other side of the globe, Anatole, you work for the uh, Quincy Institute based in Washington, D.C., so you have some insight into American politics as they currently are. You mentioned earlier divisions inside the Biden administration on uh, between sort of hardliners and more cautious voices. There's also the prospect of a Republican president. The two frontrunners at the moment are both pretty skeptical about continuing support for Ukraine. So there's a sort of time element here, isn't there? Can you talk a little bit about that and that how that is going to shape political and military decisions from the Ukrainian and indeed from the Russian point of view in the coming months? Well, in the coming months, the Ukrainians are going to go on getting massive aid. But there have been, you know, off the record statements in both Europe and America that after this year, that cannot be guaranteed. That's why everyone is saying that so much hangs on the coming Ukrainian offensive. As to US policy after that, it very much depends, not just whether the Republicans win, but which Republican wins. Because somebody like Nikki Haley, if it was her, would, I think, basically continue existing policies in a more modified form. Donald Trump might well change them radically. But much, you see, also hangs on US relations with China. Because in the Republican camp, a great deal, and some Democrats as well, by the way, as well, are advocating you know, drawing down support for Ukraine and seeking some sort of settlement with Russia, ceasefire to end the war, uh, basically because they take a, a very sort of harsh realist line. They see China as by far the greater threat to American primacy in the world. And basically, they want to concentrate overwhelmingly on China. And they see that Russia and the war in Ukraine is a distraction from that. But that means, of course, that, as I say, a great deal will, will depend on how relations with China develop over the next year or so. So can we uh, go to the paper that you're alluding to it there, Anatole, to the paper you've just written about the path for a ceasefire, as, as it's described. You note know that barring an improbable victory for either side, the war will have to end in negotiations. I think we can all agree on that. But the US needs to play a key role in this. Uh, can you kind of, you know, give us a bit more detail on what you think the US needs to do or should be doing and how it might play out? Yeah, this is a, a paper which has just been published by the, the, the Quincy Institute on the search for a ceasefire in Ukraine. And w what it says basically is, is that, you know, th there are not going to be ceasefire negotiations now because everyone is waiting for the, the results of the Ukrainian offensive. And ceasefire negotiations are going to be extremely difficult because the Ukrainian foreign minister, who does not necessarily reflect Zelensky's views because there have been clear differences between them in the past. But he has just said that Ukraine will not negotiate on territory and will not agree to freeze the, the conflict along existing lines, which, of course, rules out a, a ceasefire. But what I argue in the paper is that actually, whatever the result of the Ukrainian offensive, there will be pressure for a ceasefire once the results of it are, are clear. Because if 
Ukraine does break through, cut off Crimea and threaten Crimea, then there will be a great strengthening of the voices in Washington and in Europe who say, look, Ukraine has recovered by far the greater part of what it has lost since the Russian invasion. The Biden administration has always said, you know, our aim in supporting Ukraine is to strengthen Ukraine at the negotiating table. Okay, this is the moment to negotiate, because if we back the Ukrainians into going further and actually attacking Crimea, then the risks of escalation are very great. If, on the other hand, the Ukrainians suffer a really bad defeat and it's Russia that starts to advance again, well, then you will have people saying, look, we, we've got to have a ceasefire now so that Ukraine doesn't lose more territory and isn't actually weakened at the negotiating table. And they will also say, look, it's clear that you know a, a complete Ukrainian victory is not possible and we can't go on giving this level of aid for forever. And that will also, of course, be a widespread line if neither side makes any gains and you have a continuation of the existing stalemate. Because then, you know, the, the line will be strengthened. This is coming to resemble the First World War, that you will have a, a, you know, a bloody conflict going on essentially forever uh, with no prospect of you know, of a resolution through victory. So I, I, my, my view is that whatever happens, we will see pressure for a ceasefire come the autumn or winter, and that the Biden administration should start to lay the groundwork for this now, including talking to China, but also to, you know, other countries that can act as interlocutors. But I also suggest that the administration and also governments in Europe and thinkers on this conflict need to change their discourse somewhat when it comes to Ukrainian victory. Because the Ukrainians say victory, you know, means the recovery of all their territory lost since 2014. A good many Ukrainians and others in Eastern Europe say that victory must mean the overthrow of the Putin regime or even the destruction of Russia as a state. But if you look back a bit to the start of the invasion, uh, Russia's intention was either to, to subjugate the whole of Ukraine, to turn it again into a Russian client state, or and or basically to, to break off half the country, you know, to divide Ukraine in two between the mainly Russian speaking areas and the rest. Now, that has been completely defeated. Uh, I don't think there is, uh, from my own observation on the ground, it, it is not just militarily, but also politically impossible for Russia to turn the whole of Ukraine into a client state. And when it comes to territorial gains, R Russia failed in four out of its five objectives. But if you look at this in historical terms, this reverses not just Russian aims at the start of the war, not just you know Russian aims since the end of the Cold War, but this reverses the dominant pattern of 400 years of Russian-Ukrainian history. The great majority of Ukraine, if things stopped where they are now, would be completely independent of Russia and closely aligned with the West. Now, that is already a colossal victory for Ukraine and for the West. It's not a total victory, but it is, as I say, a tremendous victory in historical terms. I think we you know, we need to to emphasize this because there's still a lot of language about this being an existential war for Ukraine. Uh, I'm not sure that it is actually anymore, unless you know, Western support were to collapse totally and there were to be a prospect of complete Russian victory. But I don't think that is 
you know, at all likely. So, you know, what, what we are talking about is much more, what we ought to be talking about is, is more limited goals. It's all thought-provoking stuff, isn't it? Well, that's enough for part one. Do join us after the break. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Welcome back to the big interview with Dr. Anatole Levin. This is what Anatole went on to tell us next. Um, Anatole, you've been quite critical of what I suppose you might describe as a sort of, you know, black and whiteism approach to the way the conflict is presented both by political leaders and by the media. You're an ex-journalist yourself, and you've been quite critical of media coverage. Are, are you really saying that the picture that we get from Western media on the ground is giving us a distorted image of or understanding of what's going on? Well, not nearly as distorted as the picture being given by the Russian media, I have to say, um, to the Russian people and the rest of the world. But then um, speaking as a former journalist, I, I, I don't think saying that the Western media is a, is a good deal better than the Russian media is a tremendous compliment, actually. You know, my, my father was head of, of the Russian service and then the Eastern European services of the BBC at the height of the Cold War. Uh, he did not take the line that our approach should be to lie a bit less or a bit better than the Soviet side. He took the line, one of my earliest memories, saying you combat lies with the truth. So, and I have to say, he drew a rather clear line between the BBC and, for example, Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty in that regard. So, yes, I mean, I think, and one has seen this in previous conflicts as well, I mean, very understandable anger at the Russian invasion, contempt for Putin, anger at Russian atrocities. But yes, I mean, it has led to a degree of, frankly, propaganda and very careless reporting. And, you know, I was talking to a, an American journalist for a, a leading publication recently, who was actually stationed in Ukraine. And uh, I asked about, you know, why he doesn't report divisions within the Ukrainian government and political elites, which you certainly pick up if you're there, and which could, of, of course, as I say, be absolutely critical in future, uh, because, you know, pressure for a ceasefire could lead to a, a radical split in the, in the Ukrainian regime. And some of its members have explicitly openly threatened that if Zelensky does move towards any kind of agreement with Russia, he will be overthrown. So I asked him why he didn't cover that. And he said, well, well, oh, I, I just find, you know, these, yes, I mean, there are ter terrible, you know, internal battles in Ukraine, but I, I find them too depressing. So I, I don't cover them. Okay. And then I, I asked, just in the few weeks I spent there, talking to Ukrainian journalists, you heard a great deal about um, well, I mean, Ukraine, the Ukrainian government has, has taken over the whole of television. It's all state television now, but newspapers and journals as well. You know, anyone who suggests that indeed Ukraine will have to negotiate some kind of agreement in the end uh, will be sacked, will be fired and may very well receive a visit from the Ukrainian security services. You know, anyone who goes further than that and you know, condemns Ukrainian ethnic nationalism uh, is extremely likely to end in, in jail. So I asked him, you know, you're a journalist. Generally, we basically stick up for, 
free speech and journalists under pressure in other countries. And he, um, he, he said, well, yes, I mean, of course, that, that may be true, but my job is to cover the war. Uh, so basically, you know, he's just doing war reporting from the Ukrainian side. Well, <laughs> I mean, I covered several wars as a as a journalist, uh, but if anyone had told me that that meant that I, you know, couldn't cover the political issues on either side, I mean, no, nobody would have asked me that question. It would have been considered ridiculous. Although I have to say, I mean, when I was a journalist in the eighties covering the Afghan Mujahideen war in Afghanistan, um, actually. So many of the divisions within the Mujahideen camp, which of course later turned out to be absolutely catastrophic for Afghanistan, were in fact ignored or very much downplayed by the Western media, which was, I have to say then, yeah, I mean, to a great extent acting as Mujahideen propaganda and also under heavy influence from the American and British governments. So, uh, yeah, go on, Patrick. Fascinating what you're saying about this aspect of a sort of you know na- nationalist narrative, which doesn't seem to bode very well for post-war Ukraine. It would be a bit of a paradox if we have been assuming that we're kind of fighting for Western values or our support is, is really a part of a, an attempt to turn Ukraine into a Western state. And in fact, from what you're saying, there's a danger it might turn into a kind of 21st century Prussia, a sort of militaristic, monocultural state. Is that something you think is a real possibility? Oh, absolutely. In many ways, it's well on the way. Um, and of course, it's not just Ukraine we're talking about here. There have been you know, obvious moves in this direction in Poland and Hungary and in the Baltic states for many years now. And it's interesting that <laughs> we go on very strongly uh, condemning uh, Viktor Orban and his movement in Hungary for this kind of ethnic militant nationalism. We've gone very quiet about the Poles um, over the past year. That is, of course, because uh, Hungary is, is still friendly towards Russia on the whole, whereas, of course, the Poles are the leaders of the pro-Ukrainian camp. But in terms of a basic ideology, there's very little to choose between the Polish government and the Hungarian government. And uh, yeah, I mean, that poses a a serious threat, I would say, in future. Uh, Of course, one should not simply blame the Europeans. You know, we have a, a government in Italy now, which is descended, at least, quite openly from the neo-fascists. And there is a very good chance that the next president of France will be called Le Pen. So, I mean, there is a general swing in this direction within Europe. But yes, I mean, certainly, I, I think the liberal media in the West needs to pay you know, much more attention to this and should, by the way, have paid much more attention to it before the war as well, because the, and by the way, I mean, a, a former advisor to Zelensky has said this himself, Alexei Aristovich, that it's very difficult to see how Ukraine can appeal to the populations of Crimea and the Eastern Donbass to return to Ukraine while pursuing you know, ethno-linguistic policies, uh, which were the things that alienated those populations in the first place, you know, in the 20 years after the fall of the Soviet Union. So, yeah, I mean, uh, this is a a serious problem. And, of course, the other thing to emphasize is that we need to look at these issues because Zelensky, who, of course, does not at heart believe in, in any of this, though he has aligned himself with it since the war, But Zelensky may need a lot of help from us in future against his, you know, hardline forces within Ukraine. Uh, I have to say the great majority of people I talked to um, assumed, and I think rightly, that the Ukrainian military, which of course, understandably during the war has become very hardline, uh, will play a 
a leading part in politics in Ukraine in future. Anatole, can I ask you a little bit about the role that you think China can and will play in the ending of this war? I mean, clearly it's aligned with Russia up to a point at the moment, and it doesn't want to see a disastrous Russian defeat for, for lots of different reasons. Uh, and yet at the same time, it's been toning down the, the Russian rhetoric, certainly the nuclear saber-rattling rhetoric. Uh, and I think you feel that it can play a crucial role. You've already talked about the the need for America to speak to China what kind of role do you envisage China playing? Well, I think the most important thing to point out here is that you know China is often described as an ally of Russia. It isn't. America is an ally of Poland because, and we are British, uh, because we have a, a treaty with Poland which obliges us under the Baltic states NATO treaty to go to war if these countries are attacked. There is no chance of the Chinese sending their army to fight for Russia in Ukraine, and to date, also, you know, China has not given. Russia, serious military aid uh, or serious economic aid. It's bought Russian oil and gas, but then <laughs> so is India and, you know, so many other countries around the world regarded as Western partners. So, you know, China has observed a much more restrained attitude to this war, I would say, than many predicted. And I think certainly the Chinese journalists and think tank people I've talked to say that, you know, China does really does not want to give much great, uh, you know, great support, open support to Russia. Uh, above all, of course, because it fears uh, that then Europe would really be driven into the arms of the United States and would impose really serious and damaging sanctions on China. But they also say that, you know, if they became convinced that America and the West were out to impose a total defeat on Russia, uh, that could lead to, you know, the not just the fall of the Putin regime, but the potential the end of Russia as a great power. Uh, or some kind of great power, then China would have to play a bigger role because you know keep, keep holding Russia together as a major player is regarded in Beijing as a vital Chinese interest. So, you know, I think China is is still feeling its way. China has, after all, except for you know the Iran Saudi détente, has no real diplomatic experience of mediating conflicts in this way. So, I think you know Ch China China does not have a plan at present. Uh, but given that it, you know, it does have good relations with Russia, it has managed to maintain reasonable relations with Ukraine. Uh, given that, of course, Russia is increasingly dependent on China economically, I think that, uh, yes, I mean, China could play an important role as an interlocutor. But I think two things have to be recognized in that regard. Firstly, you know, China is not going to order Russia to surrender completely. It's not going to order Russia to give up Crimea because the Russian government wouldn't do it. It just can't. And China, to, to force it to, would have to say, okay, well, then we're not going to buy Russian oil and gas. No chance, absolutely no chance that China would, would bring that kind of pressure to bear on Russia. Uh, but the other thing is, China will not, I think, act in any way without having confidence that the United States is fully committed to a ceasefire process, because what it would be afraid of otherwise is is that, and I think you know, we can see why they would be afraid of this, that they would stick their necks out. They would you know, put a lot of their diplomatic prestige on the table. They would spoil their relationship with Russia. And then America would walk away from the solution, uh, which in a way, I have to say, is what happened with the Minsk II agreement brokered by France and Germany 
2015. Having initially approved the agreement, the United States then did absolutely nothing to support it. It left France and Germany hanging, and the French and Germans themselves were not prepared to do anything to support it without American backing. So America would have to assure China that it is fully committed. And basically, that if China is going to bring its influence to bear on on Russia, that America will be willing to bring influence to bear on Ukraine to agree to a, a ceasefire. Without that, I don't think the Chinese will get seriously involved. Okay, well, I've got no further questions. That was absolutely brilliant, Anatol. Thank you very much indeed. Very wide ranging, but going very deep. So we're very grateful to you for coming on. It was a pleasure. Um, I hope we get to meet in, in person at some stage. Well, I have to say, Patrick, that was one of the most intriguing and interesting interviews we've done because in many ways it challenges a lot of the positions that we've been taking on the podcast in recent weeks. And I'm not saying we've been completely knocked off our perch, but you do have to reassess certain things, don't you? I mean, not so much the stuff about Prigozhin and Putin. That was interesting enough. The fact that Prigozhin is uh, sort of setting himself up as an alternative ruler and that Anatol wouldn't rule out the possibility that there might even be some kind of Putin stroke Yeltsin type relinquishment of power as long as he gets guarantees that he's not going to be prosecuted for his past crimes in inverted commas and that Prigozhin may take power. But also the point that actually some of his actions are as much about self-defense as they are about really, you know, a determination to do down his enemies because he's clearly got a lot of them. Yes, I quite agree, Saul. I mean, I found myself being shifted away from my the normal kind of, I would say, tram lines, but the, the sort of a direction that I think we both kind of follow when we're discussing the Ukraine situation. And it did cause me to reevaluate. I was particularly struck by his observation or his judgment that uh, Ukraine's already won this war, that it's already got the basis for a future in which it could, you know, be seeking its own destiny. Uh, without a threat from Russia, and that this ought to be something that's said more openly by both uh, you know Western political leaders and by the Western media. So that is definitely a point of view that, that's worthy of, of deep consideration. And all of this is underpinned by his overall point uh, that you have to consider this, the long-term solution here. Both sides have entrenched themselves in a position it's really going to be hard to pull back from the Russians because they've proclaimed these four states, which are clearly going to be unacceptable for Ukraine to ever relinquish, even, even given the point that he's made about the fact that Ukraine has effectively overturned 400 years of opposition or at least infighting with the Russians. And of course, the Ukrainians, because they are determined to get back not just the status quo antebellum on the 24th of February last year, but also recover the whole of the Donbass and Crimea too. And it's on the subject of Crimea that Anatole was most interesting, because what about that comment made by the former liberal Russian friend of his that they would consider an attack on Crimea to be a justification for the use of nuclear weapons. I mean, it's pretty scary stuff, isn't it? The one thing I do take slight issue with, I have to say, in the whole interview is the point that we need to be concerned about escalation. I'm really not convinced that the Russians have much leverage as far as escalation is concerned. He's he's spoken about, you know, attacks on infrastructure, also possibly attacks on air bases in Russia. But all of these really are potentially uh, going to bring down NATO 
in a war against Russia. And that is a war they can neither win nor do they want. So yes, there's going to be a lot of saber rattling, a lot of threats, but I'm not quite sure it, it can go that far, I'm afraid. And I'm not quite sure that America and the rest of NATO is really particularly concerned any longer, but I might be wrong. I was also impressed with uh, his view that China is definitely going to be a big part of the end game and that it needs to be brought in. The United States has to reach out to Beijing and to start engaging with China to find some sort of solution, which will mean, of course, backing away from the uh, basically sort of absolutist uh, reinforcing the Zelensky line rhetoric that's been coming out of Washington pretty well continuously since the beginning of the conflict. So I also feel that he's probably right about that, that uh, we do need to recognize China's growing diplomatic power in the world. As he says, it'll be a first for them to actually negotiate an international peace agreement. Of course, America was in that position at the beginning of the 20th century when it stepped in to sort out uh, the end of the First World War. That didn't actually turn out too well. So let's hope that's not a precedent here. Great stuff. Okay, well, that's all we have time for. Do join us on Friday when we'll be bringing you the latest news and also answering listeners' questions. Goodbye. Goodbye.